I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Chad Finn from The Globe is going to join us in just a little bit. We have the remade Nesson booth for the Red Sox. We'll get into the broadcast for the Celtics as well. I think that Eddie House is a huge star for NBC Sports Boston now, so we'll get into that with Chad Finn as well and get into some Red Sox as well as we get closer to the season. So I'm really excited to do that with Chad as we can recap what happened to Heimblum in Springfield getting booed at winter weekend, which is just remarkable to think about. But I do want to start with the C's because they extended their winning streak to nine games on Saturday. They end up beating the Toronto Raptors 106-104. They're the best team in the NBA, and they're the best road team in the NBA as well. But man, that game could have been a real disaster in terms of the long-term impact, right? You had Marcus Smart go down with an ankle injury. That thing looked nasty. And then Robert Williams doesn't come back out after halftime for what the team called a hyperextension of his knee, his surgically repaired knee, by the way. And then Derek White was taken out of the game with a knee injury. And it just made you hold your breath, right? So the good news is x-rays negative for Marcus Smart's ankle. Joe Mazzulla said he's day-to-day. Rob, he said it's nothing serious there. It was just precautionary. And Mazzulla said White's injury was not serious. And Derek White's like an Iron Man. He's sort of like Tatum. The guy plays every game. So a real gutsy win for the Celtics in Toronto without those guys in the lineup. Tatum didn't even play and all these guys had to leave. So it was a really gutsy win for the Celtics. But I'm just glad that these injuries are not serious going forward. But what happened in that game on Saturday had me thinking. So I just got a bunch of random Celtics thoughts that I want to get to. So the first one is this. So Pritchard's been in rumors because of the limited time that he's gotten this year for the Celtics because there's so many good guards in front of him on this team. And look, I'm not going to overreact to the fourth quarter in a random regular season game against the Raptors on Saturday night. But at this point, can you really afford to trade Pritchard, right? By the way, did you see his quote before I get into that? His quote last night, 
I wouldn't be in the position I am today without having a tough mindset. A lot of people look at me. I'm a six foot one white American guard. There's not a lot of us there. So you're going to have to be tough and bring it every day. This is what he was asked about. Like, hey, how do you stay ready? How do you stay tough through this whole thing? So that was a hilarious quote from Pritchard after the game. But look, I think having a guy like Blake Griffin around helps him because those guys are close. Because really think about this from Pritchard's perspective. You go from being in the NBA Finals rotation, okay? He was in the rotation in the NBA Finals to not being in the rotation during the next regular season, not in the next playoff rotation, in the next regular season. That has to be tough for Pritchard. And look at what he did last night. He's a game-high plus 19. He finishes with 12 points. He knocks down four threes, or I should say knocks down three threes, and he hits three in that third or in that fourth quarter, rather, when it was winning time, three big threes. He put the Celtics up 95-89 with eight minutes left. He then put them up 101-93. And then the huge one with 90 seconds left where it put him up 106-103. Now, he did have that mind-numbing turnover late when he just inexplicably threw the ball up with 14 seconds left, like right to Gary Trent. It was kind of like the Tatum play the other day. Like, I had no idea what he was doing. But the C's held on. They win the game. But huge shots, by the way, from Pritchard. But interesting development. He has now passed Hauser in the rotation. Hauser got a DNP coach's decision. And if you look at Hauser since the start of December, the Celtics have been outscored by 65 points when Hauser has been on the floor, by far the worst on the team. And his shooting has gone to shit. Since the start of December, he's 21 of 73 from deep. So that's 28.8%. Pre-December, he was a plus 142, right? Juxtapose that to post-December. He's on minus 65. And then from deep, he's 46 of 96, 47.9% from the beginning of the season through the end of November. So the plus minus, we're talking about a 207 point difference. And we're talking about an almost 20% dip off in terms of his three point shooting. And Hauser has been targeted a lot defensively, right? So in isolation, he's defended 53 possessions, third most on the Celtics. Opponents are now 23 of 43 when they have Hauser as the isolation defender. That's 54.8%. That's in the 34th percentile. So teams are starting to take advantage of him at that end. And if he isn't hitting shots, unfortunately, I hate to say it like this, but he's useless, right? Like Hauser's one strength is he's an unbelievable shooter. He does that better than anything Pritchard does. But Pritchard can run an offense. He can shoot well enough. He's shooting much better this month than he was previously. And he plays with a ton of energy, right? Like you can tell, like he brings a jolt of energy to the team. So Missoula, from my perspective, is making the right decision right now by having Pritchard over Hauser in the rotation. He's more of a positive player right now, and that's more likely to be the case because Pritchard does more things, right? So it's more likely that Pritchard's going to be a good player on a day-to-day basis than Hauser because Hauser is so dependent on that jump shot. And if that jump shot's not falling, he really, really hurts you on the other side of the floor. And the other thing about not moving Pritchard, the reason I wouldn't do it, you look at the guard line right now. White has never hurt, but he got injured last night. Smart has an injury history, and he was hurt last night. Brogdon has a massive injury history. That's part of the reason you only had to give up one first-round pick for the guy. And Jalen has an injury history, right? So you look at the guards, you got to plan for one of those guys going down, and we've already seen it multiple times this season. So Pritchard, and this is not meant to be an indictment, he's 24 years old, and I don't see him getting that much better, right? Because In terms of his ceiling, he's somewhat limited, right? I mean, he's said it himself. I mean, he's limited from an athletic standpoint. He doesn't have a lot of size. So sure, his shooting could get more consistent, but really there isn't some big leap that you could see Pritchard making in the next couple of years. And he's relatively 
old for where he is in his NBA career, right? Three years into this thing. But my point being is he isn't the type of piece that's going to bring back somebody big in return, right? And I would imagine if teams like the Warriors and the Bucks could get a guy like Pritchard, they would. That's part of the reason he's in rumors, right? Because teams think, hey, contending teams, we need depth at the guard line. Pritchard would serve that, right? So I just, he's not like, you're not trading him for pieces for your future, right? Like you're not going to get a big upgrade for trading Pritchard. And the only teams are going to look at Pritchard. It's not like young teams in the league, like ordinarily a young player, you'd be trading him to a rebuilding type of organization. But I don't really see that with Pritchard because I don't really think there's this big upside there. So if you're going to get some random big back in return for Pritchard, I wouldn't do it because who knows how much that guy's even going to play, right? I think Pritchard's depth and the depth that Pritchard, I should say, provides to this team is more important right now than getting a third big, considering the injury history with these guards and considering that Hauser has fallen off a cliff. All right. So I know you're going to feel, if you look at the big situation, you'll feel uncomfortable with Al being 36, Rob's injury history, and an unproven cornet, right? And we saw it last night that you had a situation where Rob goes down in that game, but I just rather have the safety blanket of a guy like Pritchett at the guard line than add a third big. Like, I understand the idea to do it, but my assessment is that the depth at the guard position, what he brings is more important than getting a depth big. And I think being out of the rotation has motivated him, right? Like, he looks like he shot out of the cannon when he comes into the game. So that's just a bigger picture thing I'm looking at is I just feel like what Pritchard brings is more important than getting a random third big. The other rotation thing is Cornette played just eight minutes last night. I'm interested to see what the minute totals are going forward here because I think that's something internally they have to decide on. Like we're talking about upgrading the third big spot or not. Like you got to play Cornette more minutes just to see if you think he can hold up in a playoff series if you were going to have the hypothetical injury to Robert Williams. Like it's happened so many times or Al Horford has to miss a game, something along those lines in the postseason. Like, I think Cornette's going to have to start to get more minutes here just to sort of get an evaluation of him, right? And I think if they looked at this and said, hey, the right deal is there for a big man, they would consider it. And we know Brad's not afraid to trade picks. But right now, you think about the one guy that could be like a difference maker. It's Jakob Pertl out there in San Antonio. They're asking prices, two first round picks. And maybe that comes down. But Remember, Brad's willing to part ways with picks for guys that are going right into the rotation. Derek White, you're giving up a first round pick because he's going to be in your top eight. Malcolm Brogdon, you're giving up a pick because you know he's going to be one of your best players. That's why I just don't understand the Pirtle thing, right? Like if Rob and Al are both healthy right now, Pirtle's not going to play. Like in a playoff series, you're not going to play Pirtle much if you have a healthy Rob and a healthy Al. So you're going to give up two first round picks or give up a first round pick for an insurance policy. It just doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. I'd much rather have a guy like Pritchard depth at the guard line than adding a guy that may not even play that much. And if you look at Cornette, the defensive rating has been really good when he's on the floor. 107.3 and Memphis leads the league at 109.2. So they've been better than the best defense in the league with Cornette on the floor. And look, it's only 464 minutes and it's against reserves. So I understand that it's it's not really like uh indication of what he definitely is as a player. But I just think internally the C's will come down to the conclusion of, hey, we can get away with a couple of minutes of Cornette in the postseason. And if Al or Rob has to go down, we can play him a little bit more. And there's also the Grant component, right? Where if you look at cleaning the glass has the numbers, the Celtics have a 119.3 offensive rating with Grant on the floor at center and Denver leads the NBA at 118.1. So they've been better than the best offense in the NBA when Grant plays center. Defense has not been good. 118.2 rating, which would be about 29th in the league. So 
there is a give and take there with Grant in the center minutes, but I think you could convince yourself of, hey, we can get away with that lineup defensively. We'll dial it up once we get into the postseason. And we know for sure it works on the other end. We know Grant at the center lineup, that really works on the offensive end of the court. So I think that's where the Celtics will end up with this thing is they'll look at it and they'll say, we're not going to pay a big price. We're not going to pay a premium for a backup big. Do we really want to even give up a first round pick for a big when we know that in all likelihood that guy is not playing in a playoff series unless Al or Robert Williams is going down. So I know people are trying to get fixated on the trading deadline right now and what the Celtics may or may not add. I don't see them moving Pritchard. I don't believe they should. Now, don't call me crazy. If somebody like overwhelms you with a Pritchard offer, yes, you make that deal. But I'm saying if it's me right now, I'm not moving Pritchard and I'm not adding another big. I just don't think it's necessary. If a guy comes cheap, okay, get him off waivers, whatever, fine. But I wouldn't be using draft picks to acquire a third big. All right, I did want to mention Grant from last night, 25 points, four threes. He got to the line eight times. Grant Williams got to the free throw line eight times. Just shocking to me. He played 34 minutes, and you look at Grant's on the season. He's playing 27.6 minutes per game. He has more games, obviously, in the 20s than he does in the 30s. And if you look at him, when he plays 30 to 39 minutes, of course, he went over that last night, as we mentioned, 50.8% from the field, 40.7% from deep, 11.1 points per game, and 5.1 rebounds per game. So like I talked about Pritchard and him being out of the rotation. Now, Grant is playing more than he did last year, but this is a guy entering his contract season. He could easily be getting more playing time, right? This is another example with the Celtics team of everyone sort of pulling the rope in the same direction. And I do, (laughs) I look at it, I give Grant a lot of credit, man. You're in a position right now where you're going to get a hopefully get a massive contract and and on any other team, Grant Williams would be playing more minutes. Like in the way he performed last night, it's like I had 25 points when you played me 34 minutes. Can I get more minutes, please? And you don't have any sort of issue with Grant Williams whatsoever. And I do think that also kind of symbolizes where this team's at, where everybody wants to get back to the championship. And then maybe after this year, and they they do win it, that's when we could see some like ego issues with this team, but not right now. Everybody is focused on that one goal. So, I do want to thank Sam Presti again. He played Al Horford just 28 games the year that Al was in Oklahoma City before he came to the Seas. And with Al, so Thursday, 20 points, 10 boards. Now, he only had five points on Saturday, but he made the play of the game. Siakam has him in an isolation situation. Al not only stones him, then he blocks him at the rim. Al Horford, 36-year-old Al Horford, out on an island against an all-star Swingman and Pascal Siakam, a guy that's on a max contract, Al shut that shit down. He stoned him. It's just like, and it sounds corny to say this, but he is just a winning player. And he's really the perfect role player for this team, right? You have the two young stars in Tatum and Brown, and you have a a center that is very young in Robert Williams that Al has to mentor him as well to help him out because he's had a tough start to his career with all these injuries. And Al just does whatever it takes to win. Like, hey, I'll play center. I'll play four. You need me to shoot tonight, like against the Golden State Warriors, I'll do that. Like out of all these moves that Brad has made in terms of the trades, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, and Al, Al is the best one in terms of the trade value, right? Sure, there's luck involved, right? Like, did anybody really think Al was going to be this good when he returned? But where is this team right now without Al Horford? You look at Robert Williams over the past year and a half, right? And I count the playoff games. You look at this last year, 61 out of 82 games. Playoffs, 17 out of 24. This year, 15 out of 47. And he went down again last night, as we saw. So he's played 90 out of a possible 153 games. That's just north of 60%. So this guy is basically missing four out of every 10 games. And I know it doesn't really work out that way, but just to put that into context, 
of how often he misses games. 40% of the time he's missing games. So this team doesn't make the finals last year without Al. They're not the best team in the NBA right now without Al. Like, you know, I'm a big numbers guy, but with Al, fuck the numbers, his value. You can't measure it with stats, what he brings to this team doing so many different things. And by the way, speaking of value, the Celtics during this nine game winning streak, guess what's happening? We saw it last night, the defense late in the game with Al Horford, but the Celtics defense is back. So nine game winning streak, the Celtics have a 107.8 defensive rating. You guessed it, best in the NBA. So what we're seeing is when this team wants to dial it up defensively, they can put the vice grips on you and stop anybody in the league. And this is important because you're going to have games like you did against the Golden State Warriors the other night on Thursday where you have a 104.3 offensive rating. And by the way, if you just put that in the context of the league, the Rockets are dead last at 109.1. The Celtics had a 104.3 offensive rating in that game against Golden State. They shot 39.8% from the field. But they won, right? Because they held the Warriors to 40% shooting. How did they beat the Bucs in the postseason last year? You held the Bucs to a 99.7 offensive rating. No team's offensive rating last year was worse than 103.8. So you made a team worse, four points worse than the tanking Thunder last year in the conference semifinals with a two-time MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And I get they didn't have Middleton and all that, but the 99.7 rating is important because the Celtics offense in that series was not great. 108.8 rating, that would have ranked around 26 last season in the NBA. So the defense is what got you to the finals last year. So knowing you can turn that up is massive because the nature of how the Celtics play offense, right? They're so three heavy. There are going to be times where the Celtics just aren't hitting their shots, but that defense can't go away. Like we saw earlier this season, there were some leaks there. This defense is back to being an elite unit. And from a personnel perspective, the defensive personnel the Celtics have, it's the best in the NBA. And it's not even really questionable if you ask me. One last note, Malcolm Brogdon had 10 third quarter points against the Raptors, almost played that whole third. He was at 34 minutes and 40 seconds last night. He finishes with 23 points. So you got the big minutes from Brogdon. And what stuck out to me about that game is this is why you got Brogdon the third quarter last night. A guy that can take over the game when either Tatum or Brown are not playing like last night with Tatum out of the lineup or just when you need a third guy to get you buckets, right? So that was big to me, just seeing Malcolm Brogdon being able to carry the offense for a good portion of that third quarter to keep you afloat, to keep you in the game. That's why you traded for that guy. Okay. Oh, and then the quote of the night, Jalen Brown, we're a team. It doesn't matter who rolls the ball out or which team is doing what. I got my money on the C's. I don't know if I can say that. So he made a betting joke accidentally. But the quote did stick out to me because this is how Jalen's been playing all season long, right? Like we talk about his improvements all the time, but he plays like he's pissed off every night. And I love that. He's such a tone setter for this team where he's saying, my money's on the Celtics because he believes they're going to win every night because of the effort they bring to the table. And I did want to mention this. So like I'm talking about what the C should or should not do at the trading deadline, like with the Pritchard thing, with the big man thing and all that. I just want to mention this, okay? Juxtapose the Celtics to the other contenders in the Eastern Conference or even across the league if you want and think about, we're talking about, do the Celtics need another big? Could the Celtics possibly trade their fifth guard? That's what we're talking about with this team. You look across the Eastern Conference, the Cavs are looking for a starting small forward. They don't have a starting small forward. Celtics don't have any kind of problem like that, right? The Bucks are hoping they get a healthy Middleton back and he's actually the player he was pre-injuries, right? But they have no depth scoring. They have no bench. They need to add players to their bench. The Nets need more guys on the wing line, right? And they're going to play all these small guys in the postseason that they have in the roster. Are they going to be able to do that? And I know the 76ers are rolling right now. They're 18 and four in their last 22, but you have playoff Doc. You have playoff Harden. What could go wrong with those two? 
And who's playing the non-Embiid minutes? Like, I know they won last night, but Montrezl Harrell, that guy is a sieve defensively. So they have massive questions when Embiid is not playing in these games, like we've seen so many years in the past with the Philadelphia 76ers. So just to put the whole thing into context, like these debates we're going to be having over the next couple of weeks about what the Celtics have to add or don't have to add, think about where they are and where they stack up against the rest of the league. They're in much better shape. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Chad Finn of the Globe. Big changes at Nesson as they roll out their new booth this season for the Red Sox. We'll get into the Celtics broadcast as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, it is Chad Finn. Chad, what's going on, man? Thanks for coming back on. Hey, Brian. It's, uh, it's good to talk to you. I think I was your first guest, right? Wasn't I the leadoff hitter here? You were. And now you're back after. And nice. I have to imagine at this point you're doing better than the Red Sox are at winter weekend. Man, what a scene that was. I mean, just getting <laughs> Heim Bloom's getting booed. John Henry's getting booed. The only guy that didn't get booed was Alex Cora. They can't boo Cora. They can boo everybody else. Yeah, I think that's good judgment by a Sox fans, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're recognized. <laughs> Cora's probably feeling the same way that they are, but uh, I've never seen anything like that. There's been uh, years of frustration as a Red Sox fan, uh, certainly not too many the last 20 years, but uh, where you go into the winter and you, you probably want to boo the GM or the manager, but uh, I've never seen anything like that where it felt like uh, those people paid their money to show up to let Heim have it. It was... Uh, it was unexpected, <laughs> although we probably should have expected it, and uh, it was quite a spectacle. Well, according to Haim, he's from Philly, so he can handle it. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes going forward. But I wanted to have you on because you had the story over the weekend. They basically make the announcement at Winter Weekend that the Nesson broadcast, and you pointed out in your article that Uke is going to be the main color analyst, and then they got yeah. a bunch of guys rotating. So what does that mean? For Uke, like how many, because last year they really had him in the mix too. It felt like after Eck, I don't know the exact number, but he was basically their number two guy after Eck. So what did you make of the decision for them to have Uke as the main guy, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, they've got huge voids to fill, obviously, accuracy, as good a baseball analyst as there is, and a uh, likable personality and unique and all those things. Uh, did it for 20 years, did about 75 games last year. You got to fill those shoes if you can which you can't but you got to try and you also have to fill that gap in the schedule and then Maserati they uh, Tony Maserati they decided not to bring back and that's another 40 to 45 games and uh, he got the weekend assignments a lot so that's when people don't really want to work you'd be fine doing it weeknights but it's harder to uh, maybe get people in a rotation to do it Saturday Sunday so that's another big gap to fill, and uh, it was uh, they kind of did it by patchwork. Uh, Uke will be doing about 70. I think he was the most well-received out of the new people that they brought in last year. Uh, Kevin Millar will be doing about 20, uh, which is what he did last year. Texas games, he'll do a shtick and all of that. Um, <laughs> I know he drove some people last year kind of crazy because he doesn't prepare. He just goes in with his routine, and uh, <laughs> if it's a three-man booth, it leaves the actual analysis to the other guy. Uh, Merloni's going to split uh, a bunch between WEI 
and uh, and Nesson. So he's going to end up doing about 90, 95 games in total. And uh, Middlebrooks isn't quite sure how many he's going to get. I got like uh, probably around 40 for him, but he's also going to be in the studio for a bunch. So uh, he knows like he uh, schedules 40, 45 games in the studio. And they're also going to use Tim Wakefield as they – uh, third voice often where they try to go for that pitcher hitter dynamic that Remy and Eckersley had uh, so well. So Wakefield will be there in a lot more than uh, he has been in the past couple of years. Yeah, it's an interesting group. So before I get into this group in particular with Millar, by the way, you're completely right on that. He is just he is completely out there. Like, I know he's got a very entertaining TV show and all that. But when he was doing Red Sox games at points last year, I'm like, has he watched the team at all? Like, he was talking more about the Toronto Blue Jays than he was the Red Sox in a game they played. Like, he's talking about Bo Bichette. I'm like, stop talking about Bo Bichette. But, and the yeah. other thing he does a lot is... He drove Ack nuts. He did? Yeah, when they were in the booth together, yeah. Because Eckersley's big thing was... Uh, and you think he's kind of off the cuff and um, that it all comes easily for him, but he's a baseball nut. He would go home after the games and watch uh, Oakland, Seattle. And know about the fourth guy out of the bullpen for Seattle when they came to Boston the next week. Mars the opposite of that. He's doing cowboy up shtick still, and uh, it didn't didn't really mesh in that three man booth the way they thought. Yeah, so I guess that would be the one surprise that they're bringing him back. I get it; he's a name and all that, but I am kind of surprised that he's back this year. So, what do you think happened with Maz? Was he just not well received because? It was only one year. It's not like the guy was around for two, three years. And I know he's got, you know, a totally different personality on 98.5 where it's, you know, more yeah. of a radio show. It's hot takey. So was that part of it, too? Just the fact that, you know, on the radio, he's killing the team a lot. Like, is that part of the equation here? I don't know, because they shouldn't have hired him in the first place if that bothered them after <laughs> having point. him for a year. He's been on uh, 98.5 since 2009. This is nothing new. He's yeah. everything has sucked <laughs> for 14 years with him. So, um, they couldn't have been caught off guard. And, you know, for the most part, the people I heard from about him liked him. There was, there's certainly an element, uh, of people who are turned off by his radio persona, um, that didn't want him part of the broadcast, but there was also an element of people who heard him on the brass cap broadcast and said, oh yeah, this is the guy who used to write for the Herald who I enjoyed reading, who still really likes and cares about baseball and what he's doing uh, two to six on the radio station five days a week isn't really how he is. It's entertainment. Um, I think people were mostly okay with that. And I heard from people just you know, couldn't stand him because of the radio personality. But uh, I I really don't know. I don't think he knows why they didn't bring him back. He, was, he wanted to come back and they just told him, uh, you're not going to be part of the mix this year. Uh, so maybe they got a commitment from somebody like Middlebrooks or they signed up Merloni to replace Maz's, uh, Maz's games. But uh, I think he was caught a little bit off guard by it and he really was disappointed. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm happy for Lou that he's going on Nesson to in addition to the U as you mentioned earlier, the games on EI, because I think Lou as a baseball analyst is really good. Like I remember when I first started at EI and Lou was doing a lot more games than he did last mm -hmm. year and he would pick up on things like pitchers were tipping like he was all up about this when Eduardo Rodriguez is on the mound. So he's obviously yeah, he, I forgot about that. Yeah, like he always knew when Erod was tipping and he would tweet it right away as well. So he's really good as just like a baseball analyst. And I think the other thing that Lou really has going for him as he gets set to do the Nesson games is like he's from here, right? Like most of these other guys, like we know them as Red Sox, but 
Lou was like a fan of the Red Sox before he was a major league baseball player. So I do think that he's going to have this unique ability to relate to the audience, maybe more so than any of the other color guys they have. Yeah, it's interesting with Lou because his career path could have gone a different way after he retired. He um, he was in the mix to co-host the uh, afternoon drive show at 98.5 that Maserati got. Uh, and he was also doing some work for Nesson at that point in time. And he took a different path. He went to WEI, um, ended up having a good run there. I mean, over a decade, that's a good run in sports radio and did a lot of stuff at NBC Sports Boston, which really you know, got cut back a lot. They stopped really covering the Red Sox for the most part um, and covered their own properties on the Patriots. So uh, he could have ended up being like the successor to Remy in another sort of sliding door scenario, but it didn't go that way. But now he's got that door open again. And I think it's a really good thing. You know, Lou and I, we, we had our back and forth through the years on Twitter and things like that, but I've always really respected him as a baseball personality probably because i agree with him on just about everything but um i like what he has to say i i I think he is really insightful and he's been with o'brien before i mean they did uh when ob before he came over to tv after the whole orsillo debacle uh he did red sox radio for i think seven years and merloni was in the booth for the 2013 world series with o'brien so there's going to be Pretty easy chemistry, I think, with those guys right away. And I think this is what Lou's best at. And, you know, I used some quotes from him in my story, but uh, he's kind of burned out on sports radio. Um, You know, his contract wasn't renewed, and it's probably easier for him to say that now. But he said he's glad not to be talking about Mac Jones or how Tatum played against Golden State or those sort of things and just being able to focus on the thing that he really cares about. Yeah. I'm excited for him. It's a good opportunity. I can't wait to hear him on Nesson. And it's funny, he said the same. He came on this podcast after Raphael Dever signed his extension. We did an emergency pod. He said the same thing. He just fired up to talk about baseball. And we just, you know, two guys talking baseball for 45 minutes. I think he really enjoyed that compared to having to talk to his point about Mac Jones. So I'm excited for that. So how about Middlebrooks? Because they gave him a little bit of an opportunity last year. What did you make of his limited time in the booth? I know we see him all the time, you know, after the games, before the games, et cetera. But what did you make of him as an in-game analyst? Uh, he got that four-game series late in the season with Baltimore. Um, he They had planned to put him in there for two. It was after the news came out that Eckersley was retiring and they were almost sort of scrambling to quasi-audition people for this season. And uh, they, some management asked him if he wanted to do two games. And he said, Give me the whole four. And they did. And uh, he really, really liked it. He feels like his strength is reacting in real time to things. Um, I think he's going to be great at it. He's uh, he's a really self-deprecating, funny guy. Like, I think every time I've talked to him, he talks about how he's glad he doesn't have to try to hit a slider anymore. Um, <laughs> so he can he can make fun of himself. You know, he kind of ta- he's married to Jenny Dell, who's really well liked as a Red Sox uh, sideline reporter for a few years. And uh, he always talks about her like she's um, she's the one giving him the best advice and uh, keeping him in his place. And yeah, if he jokes about stuff like that, people really like it, too. They, they seem to have a really great relationship uh, and comes to social media with them once in a while. So I think Will's going to be a star. Uh, they tried him out in the booth, I think, before last season. It's sort of an audition and decided that the studio at that point in time was the best fit for him. But I can see him really blossoming in this, him in, him really blossoming in this 
and becoming the one that the fans want to hear more more than anybody else. Yeah, so I like it. I mean, I think they recovered pretty well. I mean, obviously, X stepping away really hurts you, especially after Remy had passed away the previous season. But I do like the mix. I like the. I thought Uke was good last year, so I like giving him another shot to be the main guy. And we'll see what Middlebrooks is. I mean, you seem to be high on him. I'm really high on Lou. So we'll see what it's like. I mean, and the only guy I'm not really high on in this crew is Kevin Millar. And so yeah. I mean, that the rest We're on of the, the same crew- page with all that. Yeah, yeah like, I think I mean, Wakefield's boring, too. I don't think Wakefield will have much to add. Yeah, but you said so for him, it's going to be more like he would always be like in a three man booth type of situation. He wouldn't just be the main guy. Yeah, every time. That's uh, that's what I was told. And yeah, they just want to capture that uncapturable dynamic that Eckersley and Remy had, particularly in the uh, weird 2020 season when. Nobody was really paying attention to baseball. They were in the studio uh, doing the games. And so it kind of would turn into sort of off-the-cuff conversations by guys who have known each other since they were in double A in 1972 or whatever it was, even before they were teammates with the Red Sox and broadcast partners. And so you get you get that long history and the pitcher-hitter dynamic. It was exceptional television. And they're, they're trying to capture that aspect of it with wake and will or lou or uke or whoever it happens to be um i don't think the uh the bond is really there with those guys that it was with Eck and remy and and uh, neither none of them are as good at broadcasting as those guys were either but uh they're they're, they're trying to capture that as much as they can yeah, yeah everyone's gonna miss Eck. i mean he's just <laughs> he invented his own language i mean the guy was a treasure he was absolutely unbelievable and it wasn't just like he was clowning around, but he, and like when he would actually get excited, he'd do it so organically. Like the one that comes to mind to me is the Mookie home run. What was the 11 pitch at bat? I remember it was against Hap of the Blue Jays and he hit the grand slam. It was obviously that magical 2018 yeah. season. He has the time to party like that just came right, out of nowhere right. and it became a sign. So I loved Eck and obviously we're yeah. really going to miss having Eck in the booth. So, hey, I want to ask you about this. So SNY does this like basically like a baseball show before their pregame show, like nightly i believe on sny so i'm wondering is there ever like a spot in boston for something like that like i know they have that monday night baseball show on nbc sports boston but the thing about that is sometimes when that's going on like the red Sox are playing so like who's going to turn over to that show when the people that would want to watch a show like that are actually watching the game do you think there is a space on tv for more baseball content yeah i wish nesson would do more um you know they have they have a new boss uh matt volk who uh, has kind of taken over the role that Sean McGrail had forever running the company. And I'm curious if any of the dynamics with uh, programming change, whether like I've always thought they should do like the uh, Yes Network does Yankeeographies. Great filler. You get an hour of filler about Thurman Munson. Why, why doesn't Nesson do that on Carlton Fisk? Um, people, you know, they would get great ratings, get minuscule ratings, but it would be something that people would still watch and still put Nesson in a good light as sort of this archive of team history, but they don't do that stuff because they don't think it's cost effective. I wonder if that changes. And if that sort of thing changed, uh, maybe they would add more baseball content too. I mean, through the years, they've gone through various stages, like they went through the debate show kind of stage for a while. Um, you know, they have, uh, they certainly have the personnel now if they wanted to do that yeah. they've been tom karen for over 25 years i think now and you know lenny denardo jim rice wait guys like that you certainly could do it but just need the commitment from management 
Yeah, you're right too about like the filler stuff because like you're, if you ever go to a rain delay and now when I was at EI, I was usually like hosting during the rain delay. But if you look <laughs> up at Nesson, right, like which uh, those are like my favorite, those are like my favorite shows to do because we're across the whole network. You just got crazy people calling in throughout it like during the rain delay. It was awesome. I love doing those shows. I did one last year for like over three hours. It was awesome. But when you look up at Nesson, you're trying to like figure out what's going on. Now, they're on there for a while, but when it gets to a real rain delay, we start getting the uh, My Stories, which is like, okay, right. the Adam Adovino My Story. I don't need that, right? Like, okay, like you want to show me like a Bogarts one, fine, but it got to the point where it's just like, I, I don't need it's to Karen keep Karen sitting down with guys at spring training. That's what yeah. those guys are. Hey, tech, you got a half an hour today? Sure. All right, we'll do a, we'll knock out your My Story. Yeah, those things. And it, it'd be like the most random players on the team, too, that you get the My Stories from. But so... At that point, I'm like, all right, enough of this. So, hey, I want to pivot to the C's broadcast. So, Eddie House as an analyst, and he's doing way more games this year than he did last year, even though a lot of it is on Zoom when he's in. Is I know he's in Arizona. I don't know if it's Phoenix, whatever. They do have to figure out his background, though. Like, I don't know what's going on. He's got, like, the most bizarre <laughs> background. Like, just have I think plane. they sent him a banner. He's had the NBC Sports Boston banner lately, which covers up, like, his little flag and uh, what is that? The Grand Canyon behind him or something? Yeah, what is some, that? I don't even know I, what it is. I don't know what it is either. But other than his background, like I really like Eddie House on the postgame show, the pregame show. He doesn't hold back at all. Like when the Celtics are playing poorly, he's just going at him. But obviously, most of the season has been really good for this team. So he's been very optimistic as well. I just think he's like he's brutally honest. And I think he's done a really good job. And I hope they keep him long term there because and I know this is maybe going to sound unpopular. I like him a lot more than when Perk was on the broadcast. Perk, it was like, you know, there's a lot of shtick there. There's a lot of hut takes. I just feel like Eddie House, for lack of a better term, is almost like more genuine. Yeah, he. Uh, it's funny. They recently showed the uh, Anything's Possible documentary about the 2008 championship team. And Eddie was part of that. He looks exactly the same now. He hasn't aged <laughs> at all, um, which uh, good for him. I uh, wish I were so lucky, but uh, he, yeah, he's great at it. He's supposed to do every game this year. I don't know if he's missed one or two along the way or if he will down the road, but that was the plan at the start of the year to have him do every game. And I think that was really smart by, you know, Kevin Miller, Jim Aberdale, people make those decisions over at NBC Sports Boston because Perk's a likable guy, but he's like a, uh, more likable in small doses. And you see him on ESPN all the time on the debate shows and the NBA shows. So, there's a saturation point with him that I think got hit. Um, Eddie's got a great sense of humor. He's not, you know, he'll banter with people who not only are ex-teammates like Scal and Perk, but he's great with Forsberg. He's great with Amina, Abby, uh, just really fits into it well. And uh, I, I wrote about it late last season because he just started popping up on games out of nowhere. Um, they, I think, uh, I can't remember how the story went, but they had seen him doing uh, stuff on Fox Sports or CBS or something and really liked him and asked him if he was interested. And he did a couple when he was in town and they just fell in love with him. They thought he's great at it. And uh, I think it was a conscious decision to elevate him above Perk this year and a really good one because he's uh, he's terrific. And those shows are, uh, as far as pre and post game shows go on regional cable networks, I think they're really good. I like all the personalities on those shows. They're honest about the team when they're good, when they're bad. And uh, that's all I really ask for. I don't, you know, I don't need the hot takes. I don't need somebody trying to be Shannon Sharp. I just, I, <laughs> I want to hear when they stink and I want to hear when they, they're great and they do a good job with both. Yeah. Well, Shannon Sharp, he's busy trying to fight the entire Memphis Grizzlies team. <laughs> I did find it funny. Like he, he talked to Dave McMenamin of ESPN after the game and Dave. he didn't mention, 
Yeah, he didn't mention Stephen Adams' name when he was talking about the these guys don't want to fight him. He didn't mention Stephen Adams. I wonder why he didn't say that. The guy that's like seven feet and absolutely insane. He didn't mention his name. He mentioned John. Didn't Adams put his hair down? Was that like a sign he was ready to go? Like uh, (laughs) I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I would not want to mess with that guy though. He is a massive individual. All right. So the other thing in terms of these (laughs) broadcasts that they've been rolling out with NBC Sports Boston is Grandy's been doing a lot of TV this year with Gorman not really traveling that much. And I like the dynamic between Grandy and Scal. What have you made of these players only ones, though? Like that when it's just like Scal basically is doing the play by play. I mean, those to me, I I like the personalities. I just feel like it's got to be like set up more. It's just kind of all it's just kind of. And look, a lot of them are like late night West Coast games. So like a lot of yeah. people don't see them. But I don't I'm, I'm not sure about that idea. Yeah. Um. Mike really didn't want to travel last year, and he still was for the most part. And they cut that back this year, so he basically does the East Coast road games that he wants to. It's kind of like what Joe Castig's going to be doing on the Red Sox broadcast this year, where he'll go to – I think Lou told me this. Joe's going to go to the cities that he likes, Cleveland, Baltimore, the ones you hear about during the broadcasts all the time. <laughs> uh, so that's what Mike's doing too, and they're really fortunate to be able to pull Grandy, who is a TV guy in Minnesota, 20 plus years ago before he came to take the radio gig with the Celtics, uh, be able to pull him over and have him just fit in absolutely seamlessly with Scal. I mean, that I can't imagine there's another broadcast and regional one in the NBA that has that ability. But um, I think they're, I I think those two have a really good rapport. Uh, Scal busts on him. Grandy takes it. uh, Doesn't mind being the brunt of Scal's barbs. And there seems to be a lot of respect there too. As Grandy pulls out, uh, uh, one, you know, whether you think uh, Scal is should be more serious or whatever, the fact is he's really smart basketball guy. You listen when he says something about basketball. Um, you remember when he he speaks sometimes. So yeah, this guy coached in the league with Golden State for a little bit. He knows what he's doing and uh, what he's seeing out there. And Grandy pulls that out of him well, just like Mike does. So I like them a lot. Um, I don't know if the long term plan is to move Grandy over to television when Mike retires. Mike said he probably retires after this coming season this next one he wanted to do two more um i know there are other people that nbc sports boston really is interested i've heard noah eagles name a lot who does clippers games and is getting a national profile uh so i i I don't think it would be a natural just without thinking about outside options to move grandy over but if that's what they did i mean they, they can't go wrong with that yeah, I mean, Grandy's great on TV. He's also great on the radio. I guess that would be the only downside, right? Because we envision the Celtics team obviously making a deep run this year, but into the foreseeable future. And like you need those radio calls like for the history of the franchise to have a guy like Grandy on the call. So that would be the unfortunate part if Grandy went to TV. Like this kind of cool, like the gig he has, the hybrid gig of doing a ton of TV games. But also like when the playoffs come, he's going to be calling every playoff game game, which I always feel bad for like yeah. the local TV announcers. I mean, I know Jack Edwards lets everybody know that after <laughs> what is it? <laughs> he lets everybody know like he's tweeting about like the game call when he's watching it, like when he's not calling the game. So I always ha- did feel bad about that. But that would be missed if Grandy wasn't on the post game calls. Yeah, I got a bunch of grief uh, about 10 years ago, back when I first started in the beat, because I wrote about Jack complaining to me without Nessing knowing about it, uh, that he wasn't sent to Vancouver when they won the cup. He was really mad. And uh, um, he got a lot of backlash from that, I think, from from corporate over there. But uh, hasn't really stopped him through the years about complaining about it. But yeah, I've always felt kind of bad for Mike because uh, 
you you don't get that long run like the radio guys do. He seems to get pretty damn good tickets when uh, he's not calling <laughs> the games. You always see him right there behind the basket, you know, sitting next to Ainge in the past or something like that. So I think he does okay. But um, you know, we they have such good broadcast teams that uh, uh, I know when I watch from a from a basketball fan standpoint rather than the media standpoint. I'm watching their broadcast over TNT or ESPN every every opportunity I get when it's one or the other. And uh, I think most Celtics fans probably feel that way, too. Yeah, I love the argument they had. It was like a couple weeks ago. It was Grandy and Scal, and they were talking about the dead ball era, like Grandy was talking about that in terms of basketball. The live ball era, how like offense is blowing up and Scal's trying to figure out, wait, wait, when did this start? <laughs> and they're just going back and forth on yeah. the logistics of it for five minutes. And <laughs> it was hilarious to uh, <laughs> to listen to them go back and forth arguing about this. And Did you see the game where uh, Rob broke the rim? And, oh, uh, yes, yes. The they, Den- they was to... that Denver? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they had to basically do a podcast for 40 minutes while they were waiting for the rim to be fixed. I thought they were great. I mean, I, I stayed there and watched and uh, a lot of broadcast teams should probably switch away and check back periodically to see if the game had restarted. But uh, they, they, they did a pretty remarkable job of keeping the audience during the, a really weird situation. Yeah, we are lucky that we have a bunch of great announcers here locally right now. So, hey, I want to get your take on winter weekend. So <laughs> I, it felt really weird. Like we talked about it at the beginning, but... So Heim Bloom was like asked about the Mookie situation and he said, we didn't sign him because when you make those bets, those are big bets. God, stay with me as he's getting booed. Stay with me. <laughs> those bets are better up front than the back end. If you want to make that bet, you better be ready to back up that with a whole lot of young talent. We weren't ready to back up that bet. We didn't have young talent. We have Alex Verdugo. Then we added Kike and Renfro and he just went going on. But he said we have to build the team the right way. And this is where I was just confused by the situation where he's saying we couldn't build a team if we paid Mookie. We couldn't build a team around him. Well, why? Like Bogarts at yeah. that particular point in time was on the roster. Rafael Devers, like, was it was pre like three years pre prime, like when this was happening. You had Cassis, who was years away in the farm system. But I don't understand if you pay Mookie bets, why couldn't you build a team around him with young talent? It doesn't. It, that. The, what he's saying doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't add up. Like, his whole idea of the rationale why they had to get rid of Mookie, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it was the most contentious winter weekend you could possibly imagine, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. But, uh, he, I, I feel like the point he was making really badly with lots of bets puns that seemed to me like they were done deliberately, which just isn't going to go over with a bitter Red Sox crowd that paid to be there to boo him. Um I, I think his point was Mookie would probably be 32, 33 years old when the next generation of quality everyday Red Sox players arrive from the farm system. The case that Cassis, um, Meyer, uh, whoever, you know, whoever it happens to be. I mean, they're still not loaded at the upper levels right now. Um, I think it's a nonsense point. I mean, yeah, they would have been way over the luxury tax threshold. They're still paying sale of Aldi and some of those contracts. But uh, for Mookie, I mean, they have him on the roster two years ago. Do they beat the Astros in the ALCS? Maybe. I mean, you probably could yeah. have still signed half the guys you got cheap that offseason anyway. You could have signed what they signed Hernandez for initially, two years and $14 million. I mean, you yeah. could have still brought him in. Um, it's not like they've been throwing around big bucks since Mookie left other than the, the re-upping Devers, Devers, which is a no-brainer. So uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're just getting at the fact that Mookie would be older by the time that uh, the farm system was producing again. But still, it's Mookie Bats. For God's sakes, pay the guy. Yeah, it, it really is unbelievable. And it's like, yeah, you could have won a bunch while you were building up your farm system. You can do both things. I mean, look at what teams across the like, look at the Astros. They're, they can let guys go because they've built up their farm system. You weren't at that point with the farm system, so you might as well win at the major league level as you continue to build your farm system. Like, It's not like you have to do one or the other. That's the thing that always aggravated me about like the logic behind the moves that he made. But I did think it was interested John Henry, who was booed <laughs> at the Winter Classic. So how about I this? I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> that was, I mean, they, that was all over social media. And then he shows up to Winter Weekend, said, we're fully invested we're fully invested in wanting to win championships. Then he said, what's enabled us to spend like the Yankees and the Dodgers is your support. And that comes through the ticket prices. That's when he was asked about, hey, why are the ticket prices so high? He says, well, that's how we have to build the team. Like, if you want us to spend money, you got to pay higher prices on your tickets. And it just feels like that doesn't really add up. No, uh, I mean, they don't get credit for signing Devers. They don't. It was a no brainer. Um, he's, it's not like he's 29 years old. He's still early in his prime. You, you do that no matter who you are, if you can, he's that good of a player. Um, so, but they want to pat in the back for it. And as I was watching all of this and, and reading, you know, social media about it and hearing it from my uh, baseball writer colleagues and stuff like that, I kind of wondered if the reaction would have been the same there had they signed Bogarts. And I don't think it would have been. I think it would have been, okay, we're frustrated with this team still, but we've still got Bogarts. He's sticking around. Everybody loves the guy. Devers is locked up. At least we have those two guys as, as cornerstones that the fans like. Everybody has their jerseys, that sort of thing. Now it still feels like uh, they want that credit for keeping one of the best young hitters in baseball and they want you to ignore the fact that they completely underestimated or just really weren't interested in the first place that that's my theory they they never made him a real offer until they knew that uh, bigger offers are coming uh with bogarts that uh, uh, uh had he you know had he left had he stayed fans would have been okay with that but they don't want people blaming them for him leaving and uh, it feels like they're trying to have it both ways there. Yeah, well, it's unbelievable because if you had just put in the Jose Altuve deal on the table, it was reported he would have accepted that before last season. But instead, you offered him less money than Trevor Story, so he wasn't going to sign that. And then to the Devers point, like if anything, the ownership group should be mad at Heim. Like if you went to Devers years before he was close to free agency, you probably could have gotten him for a team-friendly deal. And that's what all these other teams across the league are starting to do when you look right. at like the Atlanta Braves. They sign their guys early because it's a lot easier for Rafi to be like, yeah, you know what? 250 is not good enough. 212 is not good enough when he's two years away from free agency. If he went to Devers like right when he got here or the year after he got here, you could have got him on a pretty decent deal because, I mean, that's life altering money. It's very difficult. Like Mookie said that the toughest one to pass up was the one hundred million dollars. That was right. the toughest one. And then when it got to two, he's like, all right, I'm good. Like, I, I, I know that money's <laughs> going to be there. Yeah. And instead with Rafi, like they never really made that initial offer until last year and it was too late at that point when he saw 212 he's like okay like the austin riley deal I, when he saw that he's like okay th that's like the 
least amount of money I'm going to get. So why would I sign at that point? So that's my whole thing with the Heim Bloom situation is the ownership group should be mad at him. Like you're paying more money to Raphael Devers because you couldn't get him on a team friendly deal. I mean, look, it's not my money. Obviously, I'm happy that they have Raphael Devers signed up long term. But how about Chris Sale? So Sale is at the winter celebration, whatever you call it, winter weekend. He said this, I owe these people something. I owe everybody. I owe my teammates, the starting pitchers, who I'm supposed to be. I owe the front office. He's had 36 starts since signing that contract extension. <laughs> and like he mentioned that many. Remember, wow. Yeah, actually, that does seem high. Remember two years ago, he said that he was embarrassed for his family, like when he pitched poorly. And like I have some level of empathy for sale. But like these things that he comes out, like he says all these like crazy things about how he's in it for the team. He's embarrassed. He feels like he owes the organization stuff. That's all well and good. But it's getting to the point where it's hollow with him. And I know it's not his fault. Like, these are not fake injuries. There's These are legitimate injuries. But at some point, Chad, like, we got to get at least somewhere close to a full season <laughs> with this guy. Just give us one under the contract. Yeah. He, you know, I, 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 sometimes this is often a little tangent, but sometimes I think about what athletes would be good on TV, radio. They're still active. And I actually think Sale would be one. He's not, like, super outgoing with the media. He's great if you ask him about a teammate, but he doesn't really talk about himself very much. But he's friggin' fantastic when he's pissed at himself. <laughs> and yeah. I think if you could get him to be candid like that in the broadcast booth or bring out that actual real personality, which like my colleague Pete Abe and, and uh, Peter Abraham, some of the beat writers were saying he was uh, as happy and giddy as they've ever seen him at, at Winter Weekend. Um, I feel like he's actually got a great personality. I'd like to see that come out more, but... Uh, I'm the idiot that trusts that he's going to be good this year. I liked what I saw when he came back and pitched his, what, six innings or whatever it was last season before he had his crap luck uh, yeah. came into play again. He hit the line drive, you know, he fell off his Schwinn or whatever it was, the uh, TV something when he was rehabbing. It's just, it's been one lousy thing after another with him that almost seemed like it's out of his control. So uh, as long as the arm is sound and it looked sound for that really reflicker last year when he was on the mound. Uh, I think he can be pretty good again, as long as, you know, the uh, anvil doesn't fall on him or something. <laughs> I know, just keep him off the bike. But I'm I'm actually kind of with you, like as frustrated I am with Chris Hill and what he's done since signing the contract extension. Alex Cora said multiple times last year that his changeup's back. And that's what he didn't have two years ago, right? Like if you look at his numbers against righties, he couldn't get him out because his changeup they hit 444 off his changeup. So the fact that he actually has the third pitch back, I do feel optimistic. Although I don't buy his whole thing that, hey, his arm's technically 30 because he's basically missed four years. I don't <laughs> buy that. Like, I think the injuries add up, Chris. Like, I don't think that accounts for That's it. That's the old Tommy John line where he always used to say his elbow was like eight years old when he was 44 or something. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I hope they get something out. I hope they really, because they really need him at the top end of the rotation because the rest of the guys you look at, like Paxton, obviously there's an injury history there. Bayo's still a young pitcher, although the stuff is like very enticing. He looks nasty. Pavetta's more of a back end guy. And we don't know about Whitlock as a starter, right? And in all likelihood, Tanner Hoke's going to be in the bullpen. So if Chris Sale can get back to, I don't know, say 75% of what he was pre injury, well, I'm, okay, then that's a dependable guy at the top end of your rotation, which this team desperately needs. Like they lead Major League Baseball in the questions, right? Everybody's got a question about them besides maybe Raphael Devers on this roster. Yeah, I've been meaning to go back and look at that 2013 team and just uh, do like the what ifs at the beginning of the season that that year. Like, 
for them to be good, what do you need to happen? And it would be like Shane Victorino being a five-tool player, Ellsbury staying healthy, Lackey being actually good, um, just on and on down the line. And those things all happened with that team. That's probably once in a lifetime where you bring in marginal players or injured players, stay healthy, and it all gels the way it did that year. And obviously there were the marathon bombing was a, a circumstance that brought them even closer together. Um, there are some similarities here with that, where they've brought in guys who are pretty good players elsewhere and have good character reputations. But then you just kind of look at it and you say, well, uh, is Yoshida going to be actually be a competent major league hitter? He's probably going to struggle right away. Uh, what's Duvall at this point? Can Hernandez stay healthy? Can Arroyo stay healthy? Do they have a catcher? Uh, where are the innings going to come from in the rotation? And you go through it, and really the only thing you feel like you can maybe count on is that the there's good depth in the bullpen, and that yeah. you know that can evaporate quickly. But um, I just look at this roster, and you you don't need a miracle, but you need about 24 things to go right with individual players for this to actually be a really good team. And uh, I, I just can't see it happening. Yeah, I do see your point, though, like on the similarities, like the Napoli's, Johnny Gomes, all these guys that they signed. You mentioned Victorino, and this one's like Duvall, Kenley Jansen, a veteran, yeah. Chris Martin, a veteran, like Justin Turner, a veteran just trying to bridge until like some of these younger guys are ready to come up. I mean, my big thing I is like... I forget Turner. I forget they have him. I don't know why yeah, that is. And I actually like that, too, just because I know he said he doesn't want to play a lot of third base, but I like like don't have Rafi on his feet 155 games. And like, not that the Red Sox had a luxury to be able to take him out of the lineup because they were trying to, for most of the season, they were trying to win, right? So like, I understood why they had to keep playing him, but I hope now that they have him locked up long-term, they do protect him because he does tend to get banged up. All right, that is Chad Finn from the Globe. Chad, great stuff as always, man. Really appreciate it. We'll catch up again down the road. And hey, enjoy these uh, Celtics broadcasts and the Nesson broadcasts to come for the Sox, my friend. Yeah, I'll enjoy the Celtics ones. The Nesson's one, Nesson ones remain to be seen, but uh, could have been worse, right? No doubt. Appreciate it, Chad. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, great stuff there from Chad Finn. Love discussing the media stuff, the broadcasting stuff, and I've really enjoyed the Celtics broadcast, as I mentioned. Eddie House, the guy's been absolutely incredible this season. I am really looking forward to the Nesson booth, too. Going to get my guy Lou Merloni in there. I'm excited to hear Lou on the Nesson broadcast as well. as He's going to be on the radio broadcast as well. All right, we get time for a couple of calls. Let's do that. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hey, Brian, it's Steve from Connecticut. Just had a couple thoughts after watching that Celtics-Warriors game last night. Uh, I'm much more of a defensive-minded guy, so that's where a lot of my attention goes to. So, you know, my whole thought process is, you know, I'm I'm not going to let Klay Thompson get going. So I'm just wondering... What are we doing with some of the off-ball screens that we just cheat the screen and Clay pops back? Marcus Smart was guarding him for at least two of them in the first quarter, and we let him get going. Very frustrated with how we guard off-ball screens at times. And that leads to our ball screen defense. Why are we so content playing drop coverage? You know, it's our, our assignment probably 90% of the time. And you see later in the second half, we switch our ball screen coverage to playing more at the line of scrimmage. And we force teams to get rid of the ball off the screen or take contested shots. It's a much more effective ball screen coverage. I just don't understand why we're so content to just sit there and drop coverage. You know, these are professional basketball players. We're inviting them to take open 16-footers. 
there's nobody on the Golden State Warriors I would invite to, to take an open shot, walking into a 16-foot shot or getting downhill, right, putting pressure on our defense. You know, there was a play even in the first half where Sam Van Gundy commended Derek White for being in the right place and helped when we were more at the line of scrimmage off the screen. You know, that's the this coverage that we need. We need to help the helper, not just drop with our bigs and let the guard get downhill. Just some of my thoughts. I love the show. Love the work. Um, keep it up. Take care. All right. Appreciate it. And there's a lot of good points in there. So first, in terms of the off-ball screening, that has been an issue at times. And it was, to his point, against the Warriors where, and I know exactly what he's referring to with Marcus Smart, where Smart tried to get around the screener instead of sticking with Clay Thompson, right? So he's tried to go inside the screener instead of staying outside and on top of Clay Thompson. So what happened is when Clay Thompson, who's a genius off the ball mover, if you will, he sees that Marcus is going behind the screener, who is Draymond Green, I believe at the time. What happens is Clay says, oh, I can read that. He just flares out. He gets a wide open three, right? So I will say this about the Celtics in terms of the guys off the ball. There's nobody better, maybe in the whole NBA, than Derek White chasing guys off the ball. He is incredible when it comes to that. He does a really good job getting around the screens. That's why I thought he was going to be really good in the finals against Steph Curry and company. Now, in terms of the drop coverage stuff, so when Luke Cornett's on the court, you don't really have a choice. Like, you have to drop with Luke Cornett, right? Now, the other thing I'll say with Al Horford, though, I feel like too many times they do go to that drop coverage. Now, I do wonder this. Is is part of that saving Horford, right? Because you know once we get into the postseason, if you're the Celtics, we're going to have to switch everything, right? We're going to have to switch like crazy, and that's a lot to ask on Al Horford, who's 36 years old. But what we did see last night at the end of the game against the Toronto Raptors, when they needed to switch late and they needed to switch on a screen, they did. So I think it's one of these things where they go into the game, they say, hey, we're going to do drop coverage, and then they improvise, right? So I wouldn't be too alarmed by that because if it happens in the postseason, completely with you, like it's going to be a massive issue for this team if they actually do it in the postseason, which is why I don't believe they'll actually do it. But in terms of the off-ball stuff, it's always going to be tougher against the Warriors, but to your point, you shouldn't cheat on those. You should try to get around the screen rather than try to go underneath the screen when it's Clay Thompson. That's just like sort of knowing your personnel. You know what Clay's trying to do, and he sees you going under. That's like perfect for him. He's like, all right, I'll just flare out and I get a wide open three. And the other thing that did aggravate me, just not to go off on a tangent here, is in that game against the Warriors, they were allowing Steph Curry to throw the ball to Draymond Green. Like right after we got over half court, Draymond Green is like at the three-point line, And Curry chases that and gets a wide open jump shot. You cannot let that happen. Like if you're covering Draymond there, you can't be down in the lane, right? You have to be up on Draymond because you know what's going to happen. When Curry throws the ball to Draymond, we saw this in the finals. He chases it and gets a shot. That's what he's trying to do. So that's sort of like knowing your personnel type of thing. That stuff cannot happen. But they get the win the other night. They get the win against the Raptors. We're nitpicking with these teams, but it's real issues. And I do appreciate you bringing up those concerns. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian, this is Brad in D.C. Love the show. Um, I just wanted to comment. Uh, I really enjoyed your interview with uh, Lou Merloni. Um, one thing that comes to my mind is uh, how the Red Sox are going to manage uh, catcher and shortstop. I don't know how you can go into a season with Kike Hernandez being your everyday shortstop. Uh he can't play a full season, and he hasn't played shortstop in a couple of years. I don't know how that's a realistic option. Uh, it reminds me of last year. Hey, why don't we have JBJ play every day? Uh, well, that doesn't work. Um, the other 
side of that would be is uh, is Reese McGuire, you know, an everyday catcher. Um, to add on, is Arroyo going to be able to play second base every day? I mean, he can't stay healthy. Uh, so Merloni br- brought these uh, these points up. I know they're not done uh, trading, uh, making moves this off season, but uh, it just speaks again to how this team cannot plan, uh, Bloom cannot plan, and needs to go. Um, also, uh, I don't know why they don't just make a decision and put Hauk in the bullpen as a setup guy. It's like with Whitlock. Is he a starter? Is he not? You know, make a decision and go with it. And do it in a traditional way. You have five starters. You have setup guy, a closer. Not like last year. We don't have a closer. Well, now they figured out we need one. Okay, use Hauk as a setup guy. How can we even afford to trade if if we're uh, if we're competing this year? Uh, to trade him away, if you're going to trade him away. You might as well trade away, uh, you know, any sort of veteran you have, and, and bring up AAA players for the year. Um, it's just a very frustrating team. No real direction. We're kind of caught in the middle here. Uh, so appreciate uh, the pod, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. All right, great stuff, and I will pass that note along to Lou. That was a lot of fun when we did the Emergency Devers podcast. So a couple of things. There are a lot of meat on the bone with what you put up there. So I'll start with the end with the Tanner Houck situation. If they don't trade Tanner Houck, and I understand your frustration why you wouldn't want them to trade Tanner Houck, but if they don't trade him, he's going to be in the bullpen. He's not penciled in to be one of the five starters. I believe the reason they're saying they're building him up as a starter is so if they wanted to potentially trade him, they could get something back in return for a guy like Tanner Houck. I think if Tanner Houck's on this team, he does have a weird spot, right? Because Jansen's going to be the closer. Martin's probably going to get the eighth inning if they're going to do it that way. Now, they'll like to match up a little bit. And then you have Schreiber, who's absolutely nasty. So Houck is in sort of like a weird spot. But I do believe Houck's going to be in the bullpen. I don't think he'll be in the rotation unless really they wanted to try something unique and go with a six-man rotation this season. I mean, they could seriously do that if they wanted to based on the depth they have at starting pitching. But I believe that Houck's going to be in the bullpen. And maybe that part that is part of the rationale is, hey, maybe eventually this year we go to a six-man rotation, we put Houck in the rotation. So I don't think they're completely convinced on what Houck is as a pitcher. But if you're asking me right now, I lean towards him being a reliever. No, the other part about the catching, they could add another catcher. Now they're going to go, it seems like right now, with the McGuire, Wong, platoon there, but I will say this. I think they could add another catcher. So just keep an eye on that. They could add another catcher. I'm not saying it's going to be like some stud catcher. I think they could add another catcher there, there, and I think that could come down before we get into the season here, that they add somebody else. But Maguire was really good when he came over. I know that they got frustrated at times with the way that Vasquez called games. Like, if you look at the ERAs two years ago, they were all better with Ploiecki than with Vasquez. Vasquez is just not a great game caller. Maguire's a good game caller. We'll see what Wong is. Obviously, you'd like to get something out of Wong, considering he was in the Mookie Betts trade. All right, great stuff. And by the way, if you want to leave a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172. Oh, sorry, I didn't hit on the Kike thing. I wouldn't be shocked either if they had another infielder, but I think they are confident in Kike at shortstop. I think they are. Now, does that mean that, hey, if they feel like the, there's a right price to add a shortstop or a second baseman, that they won't do it? No, they'll do it if they can. But 
I just feel like they they feel good enough about where they're at. I think they recovered nicely with the Duvall move, adding an outfielder and pushing Kike to shortstop. So I think they're okay with where they're at right now. It doesn't mean that they're not going to add anything. I would keep an eye on a catcher, though. All right. So I want to get to this real quick on Mac because still have not had the announcement in terms of the offensive coordinator. All indications point to Bill O'Brien. But I want to mention this. So we see the second year jump more often with quarterbacks than the third year jump, right? Like Lamar MVP in year two. Joe Burrow, Super Bowl in year two. Unbelievable, right? But those guys are really, really special players, right? Like Lamar took over the league because he's the best athlete maybe we've ever seen at the position, right? I mean, or at least in the family photo, you think Michael Vick, Cam Newton, et cetera. And at that time, teams were more willing, like when Lamar came into the league, the Ravens were more willing to embrace the running style quarterback than the Falcons were back in the day with Michael Vick. Like Michael Vick's runs are like scrambles. They're not designed runs, right? And with Burrow, he was going to be great no matter what, no matter where he ended up, right? He was just special. You could tell. You watch him play. There's something different about that guy. I mean, and I'm not going too crazy here, but he sort of reminds me of Tom in terms of just the confidence he plays with, right? Not to say their games are similar, but he plays like Tom in terms of that confidence level. But how about this? So teams that like their guys, quarterbacks that or organizations that like their guys, but they were getting close to having to make a decision on the quarterback, right? Like, hey, we believe this is our guy. But are we 100% certain this is our guy, right? So this is what happens when quarterbacks are entering their third year. They didn't take the leap in year two. You're looking at it and you're saying, hey, a lot of times it's the front office that selected this quarterback. So they're looking at themselves. They're saying, hey, we got to make sure this guy starts to improve real quickly or we may lose our jobs, right? And that's where we see a lot of these third year jumps in the NFL, right? So I think about this, Josh Allen, they had already hired Brian Dayball in 2018. And what do they do for his third year? They get Stephon Diggs. With Tua, they had to do both, where he took the year three jump, right? They add Tyreek Hill, and they hired Mike McDaniel, offensive guru, considered to be that, right, coming off the Kyle Shanahan tree. And then you look at a guy like Jalen Hurts. They had already had Nick Sirianni, offensive-minded coach, and then they go out and they add A.J. Brown. So these teams that were entering the third year with the quarterback, the front offices, et cetera, they said, hey, we need to make sure we do everything possible to make this work, not only for the quarterback's sake, but for our sakes, too. Like, we got to keep our jobs, right? So the Pats, if you look at it with the Pats, they're taking the first step with Mac. They're actually going to get him a real offensive coordinator like he had in his rookie season. But they got to make the next step as well, right? Like you as a front office, that being Bill Belichick, you're going to have egg on your face if Mac doesn't work out. You pick this guy. This is your decision to select Mac Jones 15th overall. And the process there, the hope is there that he's the quarterback for the next decade or so. So you got to make sure that you are right on your decision, right? And if I'm Bill... I owe it to myself to make life as easy as possible for this quarterback because it looks bad for Bill if Mac doesn't develop, right? Mike McDaniel was able to accomplish that. Nick Sirianni was able to accomplish that with Howie Roseman. You look at Brian Dayball and McDermott were able to accomplish that with Brandon Bean there in Buffalo, right? You should be able to fix this if you're Bill Belichick. The one thing I'll say is this. It's time for Mac too. Like year three, all right, like you got to prove you're going to be the quarterback going forward. And we can all be empathetic to what Mac th- went through last year in terms of not having a professional offensive coordinator. But now, now's the time. Now is the time for Mac Jones to turn this thing around in terms of what happened last year. But it's also time for Bill to make sure that he got it right at 15th overall. Because really, he is not giving the guy that he picked 15th overall enough to work with to be able to justify picking him with that selection. And that looks bad for Bill. That's why I'm just so frustrated with the whole situation. Just get a top tier receiver, 
And we know they're going to get the offensive coordinator, do everything that the Eagles did, do everything that the Bills did, do everything that Miami did to make sure this guy works because he's not Joe Burrow. He's not Lamar Jackson. He needs more help. All right. I did want to get to one other thing quickly. So I'm on the treadmill this morning. I guess that's somewhat of a humble brag. Not really. I mean, it's a treadmill. What am I saying here? But anyway, they start doing this segment on ESPN. It's called Gutsy Performances. They were comparing Jalen Hurts playing through his shoulder sprain and Pat Mahomes playing through that ankle issue to Michael Jordan's flu game in the finals, by the way, Willis Reed. And this is the one that aggravated me. Kurt Schilling's bloody sock game. Okay. Kurt Schilling was in game six against the New York Yankees trying to break a curse coming back. Oh, by the way, from down three games to none. He had a procedure done on his ankle just so he could pitch in that game. Michael Jordan was playing against John Stockton and Carl Malone for an NBA championship. Hertz was playing the Giants and Pat Mahomes was playing the Jaguars in the divisional round of the playoffs. And we're going to talk about these gutsy performances and we're going to have the audacity to compare it to Kurt Schilling in game six against the Yankees. Seven innings, one run. I mean, come on. This is just getting ridiculous. I understand like you're trying to be creative with your programming and all that. But just show the highlights. Don't compare things to Kurt Schilling and Michael Jordan, okay? Kurt Schilling is on the training table getting a procedure done on his ankle so he can get the Red Sox to the World Series and break a curse. Pat Mahomes twisted his ankle, okay? Jalen Hurts has had the shoulder sprain forever, so he's landing on his left shoulder instead of his right shoulder against the Giants that weren't even that good. Dayball's a great coach, but that's not that good of a team. I mean, come on, give me a break. I mean, that was just ridiculous to me. Don't ever compare... Pat Mahomes beating the Jacksonville Jaguars after he twisted his leg, whatever, to Kurt Schilling getting a procedure done before a game. I mean, that's just ridiculous to me. Okay. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.